The subconscious is motivated by emotion, right? Not reason. We need to find a way to translate this into an emotional concept. How do you translate a business strategy into an emotion? That's what we're here to figure out, right? Now, Robert's relationship with his father is stressed, to say the least. Well, can we run with that? We could suggest to him breaking up his father's company as a screw you to the old man. No, because I think positive emotion trumps negative emotion every time. We all yearn for reconciliation, for catharsis. We need Robert Fisher to have a positive emotional reaction to all this. Hi, and welcome to Friends at Dusk, a Christopher Nolan filmography podcast. I'm your co-host, Marshall Doig. And I'm your other co-host, Jake Harris. And tonight we are talking all about Inception. And our friend Jay Wallace is here again. So you might have known him from our episode on Vertigo and the other Boris short stories. Uh, but he's going to talk all about his favorite movie with us tonight. So welcome, Jay. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Uh, assume that means I didn't do, you know, a horrible job. I'm here again. So <laughs> appreciate that. And uh, as a little teaser, my uh, throwing this at you guys, my personal phone's ringtone. Hopefully this comes through the mic just to show you how much I love Inception. This is the ringtone for when someone texts me. Here we go. You're waiting for a train. Could you hear that or was it too quiet? <laughs> no, that was good. I got it. I heard Leo. That's I heard awesome. him. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I My text tone on my personal phone is Leo from this movie. So let's get going. <laughs> yeah, we're glad to have you back. Uh, we, According to our analytics, we still have followers after this. So you're, didn't, uh, you didn't clear the room. So I think everything's okay. So we can start it off and jump into things with any news or observations or articles or think pieces, anything we've heard about in the world of Christopher Nolan. Um, I'll go first. It is uh, all quiet on the Christopher Nolan front uh, this week. I haven't really heard anything about him or about Oppenheimer coming up. Um, but I did actually hear something on another podcast that I listened to this week that kind of touches on what we're going to talk about tonight. In the Nolan Variations book, Tom Schoen mentions that one of the inspirations for Inception was Christopher Nolan watching the Nightmare on Elm Street TV show back in the day uh, and how that was kind of one of the the worms that kind of got inside his mind to start thinking about dreams and all of the narrative potential there. Um, and I was listening to uh, the King cast, which is a podcast all about Stephen King uh, books oh, and yes. adaptations. And they did a bonus episode this week and they were talking about how uh, I think it was like about different directors that they would like to see take on horror movies that you normally wouldn't think of. And they brought up the fact that Inception was initially probably conceived of as a bit of a horror movie. But then that whole horror concept was abandoned because it hewed too close to Nightmare on Elm Street. And then that made me think of this book uh, and our podcast, obviously. And that just got my wheels turning where like, what if the next thing he does after Oppenheimer is like a horror movie or he just does something completely out of left field for what his genre has been? Like you could argue that some of his stuff like has horror elements to it, like with uh, some stuff from Insomnia, Memento, like the like the greatest monster is man type horror stuff. But like, how wild would that be? Like him just taking his like precision level craftsmanship to everything and then just turning out a horror movie. I think that'd be pretty interesting. What are your, what are you guys' thoughts on that? I'm, I'm sure I'd be scared. Uh, there's even a couple, <laughs> there are a couple of moments from inception where obviously we're going to talk about it, but 
Maul like quickly turning her head to Ariadne and that hit of the music mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. gives me the heebie-jeebies every time. And yeah, so I think uh, in the book as well, no one mentioned it was some of the early ideas for the for the film were a very noirish, a bit hewing a lot closer to horror than a heist film. So he's he's dabbled in that territory before and then gone another direction. So I don't think he has any any problems going there. And well, yeah, I'd have to be, be prepared to go there, too. <laughs> well, I think I said it last episode, but I think there are a lot of similarities between, I mean, the greatest horror thriller director potentially ever, Alfred Hitchcock and Nolan in their hands on approach and their love for just cinematography and the in a visual medium. So. Yeah, I mean, I think when th- that moment, and we'll get to it, but that mall moment you're talking about, Marshall, that that looked like and felt like a Hitchcock villain or someone from one of his movies. And Jake, to your point about like a director going into something else, a different genre, compared to like Steven Spielberg, if you're a good storyteller, you're a good storyteller. And Ooh, yeah, I'm a big yeah. Fan, yeah, and I'm a big fan of the most recent West Side Story. And that's, you know, Steven Spielberg been like, well, I've done 5,000 movies that are like this. Why don't I do them? Why don't I try a musical? And I think he he crushed it with that movie. And it was fun seeing the Spielberg style bleed into a musical. So I, I'm with you. It'd be so fun to see him do a horror film. Yeah, I love that movie, too. I can talk. We can talk off mic for hours about that movie. That's a great remake movie. But yeah, yeah I think a musical, too. That, yeah, he also recently just, I don't know if he said this recently or if some aggregator just picked it up because they were looking for clicks, but he is a f- big fan of La La Land and Damien Chazelle. Uh, I think yes, that was because yes. actually Chazelle said, uh, oh, what was it? He was quoted. Oh, he was talking about Dunkirk and he was talking about how Chazelle said that Dunkirk was one of the most David lean like movies that he's ever seen uh, just because it combines broad scope and intimate detail so well, which is pretty much exactly what Tom Schoen says in the book. And we can get more into that with the Dunkirk episode here in a couple months, but they were kind of like going back and forth talking about each other's movies. And so he, Nolan was talking about La La Land and was like, yeah, I don't even really like musicals that much. And that one was great. So who's to say, maybe that'll be his, yeah. um, Maybe he pulls like a Tarantino and is like, I'm only going to make X amount of movies. And then his last one's like a musical about time. <laughs> I've been thinking time, about that. Different time signatures. And uh, who knows? That'd be pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, I've been thinking about that lately with Tarantino saying he's about to make his last movie or some such. So, yeah, I thought, what if what if Nolan just hangs it up too after after a dozen or so? But it's all, all to be found out. But I don't think any... Of us other two have any Nolan things. You know, life is busy as ever for me. But uh, we can talk about what we've been reading and watching very briefly. So what have y'all got? I'll go first. I'll start with what a, a new movie I watched. I watched uh, The Triangle of Sadness. As I mentioned last podcast, I tried to hit all movies nominated for Best Picture. And uh, this was one of them. So the last one I have left is Avatar. And then I will have completed all the movies nominated for Best Picture from the Oscars of this last season. Really did not like it. I think this might be my least favorite of all the Best Picture nominations so far, pending Avatar's 75-hour movie, uh, which I will watch later. But um, yeah, I really didn't like it. I just thought it was really too long. A two and a half hour movie that should have been an hour and a half. 
uh, very disjointed. You felt like you, the prime example of a movie where I feel like it's three different genres crammed into one is the Fisher King. It's a Robin Williams film where I just feel like it's so many different genres all crammed into one that there's just no focus or feel to it. And this one, just every section of the movie, there was a different set of actors, a different feel to it, a different mood. The ending actually was left open ended, but in a negative way, unlike this movie, which we will talk about later. Um, so yeah, Triangle of Sadness, not a big fan. And then I watched, rewatched The Mitchells versus The Machines, an animated film that uh, I really love. love that one. And uh, absolutely love it. Very creative animation, good story, family film, uh, just about the family's love for one another. A little quirky. You got to be able to handle a lot of flashing lights and quirkiness to it. But um, um, a lot of good moments that were, I, I, I mean, I teared up like a second time and I already knew what was going to happen. So there's one movie I really didn't like and one movie that I was reminded how much I liked. Good. And some of the cleanse the palate. Very good to hear. Uh, I'm assuming you watched those in the order that you just talked about them. <laughs> but yes, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. I have not seen Mitchell's versus the machines, but I do have two kids. So I'm, think I'm primed and ready to handle the flashing lights. But speaking of having kids, I the the new movie I've watched since we last spoke, uh, new to me anyway, is Cars 3. And the only real interest I had in watching it was really just to finally complete the, uh, get caught up on all the Pixar feature films. That was the only one I was missing. And uh, there's a reason it's taken me a few years to get around to it. And it did not disappoint my low expectations for it um <laughs> looked pretty lovely as usual for a pixar film but man they just took some of the my least favorite elements of the first cars and doubled down on it and did the yelling a cloud with all these darn numbers are ruining our sports and among other things um took an uptick at the end uh, a little bit so made it a little more enjoyable but in general uh yeah just about hit for me the the way it hit with the general supposed consensus so i've got through it I'm, I'm all caught up on my pixar now and i can wash my hands of it and move on to something else <laughs> yeah i still need to see cars three and then i think maybe i have never seen ratatouille what that is a huge it's uh. a huge blind spot it's a huge blind spot i've seen that in scene uh with the the critic like remembering why he loves food and everything and like i've, I've seen that memed and stuff i need to watch it a huge blind spot but those are like For no other two. reason than that it can enhance your enjoyment of everything everywhere all at once obviously. i know i know yeah i mean yeah the, the rakakuni um <laughs> so that's uh i need to get on that those are my two big pixar uh blind spots but i do have an animated movie that i watched this week rewatched rather um i picked up the 4k blu-ray copy of the prince of egypt that they just re-released uh just mm -hmm. in time for passover this season and i i loved this movie as a kid love it now just really like tight storytelling great animation um so i know this movie like backwards and forwards pretty much a hans zimmer um, score yes oh and it sounds so good <laughs> marshall it sounds amazing <laughs> But the if if you have a 4K player or if you even have like a, just a 4K TV, the digital copy that comes with this is still really great. And it looks beautiful. Like the the nightmare that Moses has with the hieroglyphs come to life uh, and then the ending portion where he parts the Red Sea, just like it looks like a living watercolor 
Um, it's fantastic. So it's a really great 4K transfer if you can get your hands on that. And then uh, the new movie that I watched uh, was uh, an Oscar-nominated movie. Uh, it's called Two Leslie. There's a little bit of a controversy with that for the Best Actress nomination because uh, the main actress, Andrea Riseborough, she got nominated basically through like a word of mouth campaign from a bunch of other actors, uh, ho- like hosting screenings and like just overly campaigning for this woman in a movie that like not really a lot of people have seen. And it's a really small right, indie movie right. about a Texas woman who uh, basically hits the lotto uh, when she's young and then just proceeds to piss it away on alcohol for the next 15 years. And then the movie picks up where she's hit rock bottom, but decides she wants to get better and get a job and go back to society and be a good mom to her kid again, who's like now grown. And I was not uh, like, I didn't really want to watch it. (laughs) Um, I had rented it from iTunes and the rental was about to expire. And I was like, well, I'd better go ahead and watch it just to see what all the fuss is about. I don't really like it when movies about Texans or Tennesseans or anyone from the South, like it looks like, you know, like poverty porn or Texas, like impoverished, uh, you know, like look at these poor people type movies. Like exploitative. Yeah. 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 And I thought that that's what this was going to be. And for like a good, like 15 minutes, that's what it almost, you think it's going to be. And then she um, gets a job at a hotel run by Mark Marin of all people with a little lilting Texas Southern accent uh, who takes a chance <laughs> on her and gives her a job. And then they end up um, becoming romantically involved and it's really, really, really sweet. And it's just Mark Marin taking like years of podcasting about grief and addiction and loss and just like turning it all into this one character. And like, I was sobbing by the end scene just about how like, <laughs> simple and powerful just wanting to make yourself better is as a concept and it really like did a number on me at the end maybe i'm just getting soft uh as i get older (laughs) but uh worth it for those two performances alone the movie itself people might take or leave um obviously andrea riseborough didn't win that went to michelle yo but still worth it if you want a rental and you want a nice little it becomes a feel-good movie. It's not really a feel-good movie at the beginning, but if you want a good thing that is all about, you know, the little things we do to make ourselves better, I recommend To Leslie. Um, so that's all I've got right now. We can move on to what we are actually going to be talking about today. Yeah. So tonight we are talking about Christopher Nolan's seventh, I believe, if I'm counting in my head correctly, feature film, Inception. So. You know, the, it's the next one up. He made it in 2010. Big follow up to The Dark Knight. Kind of had a blank check to do what he wanted, essentially from Warner Brothers. And he went with this film that he had been ruminating on for a better part of about two and a half decades. So we're going to do that. And uh, perhaps the the most famous byword for Inception is in pop culture today is its ending, which. Uh, we all, each of us have our own thoughts and feelings on, and we'll, uh, we will not disappoint. We'll, we'll do the thing. We'll talk about what we think, and we may try to put that off uh, as long as we can for our own ending uh, of this recording, but uh, we'll work our way to that and, and feel, hopefully get there in the end without uh, too many bumps or 
too many projections coming at us. But that's getting a little bit of the cart before the horse because we need to issue our spoiler alert reminder first. This movie is going to be 13 years old this summer. My goodness, where's the time gone? But if you haven't seen it, uh, we are going to be talking about all the twists and turns and all the things that happen. So if you have somehow come this far with us on this journey and you have not watched Inception or any other other things we've been talking about, you know, go ahead and uh, take a moment, cue up the movie, and if you feel like it, and come back and join us in this conversation. But uh, moving forward, we have our usual synopsis and details on the film. And if uh, anybody wants to pick that up really quickly, you can jump in and, and do the thing. I will be happy to do it. So, Inception came out in 2010. This is a uh, heist dream movie. It starts out, it stars um, a really good cast that I'm sure we're going to dig into. So, I don't need it, I won't get into too much of that. But in terms of the story, I'll focus on that. Um, this is pretty much about a thief who, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. He goes into people's minds. This is kind of his job. He goes into people's mind and plants uh, thoughts that then spread into their brains to where they think and their thoughts to where they think they have come up with this thought on their own. And so he will steal things and implant things. And he does this through something called inception, a term that probably everyone listening now think thinks is a universally used word to describe things and cookies and foods and whatever, but uh, really wasn't a commonplace word used until this film. But uh, what happens is uh, Dom Cobb, which is Leo's character, he is um, not able to go back to America because he is accused of killing his wife, Maul. And so he is having to live in other countries and do jobs in other countries. And um, he is given the opportunity to potentially have his name cleared, go home to America, see his kids. His wife is dead, Maul, um, as I mentioned. And so what he has to do is go into the brain um, into the mind of a big businessman and convince him to break up his father's company because his father recently died. And so that's the crux of the movie. They have to convince, one, this man needs to break up his entire family's industry and uh, do it effectively where he knows it didn't come from someone else. And so through a dream within a dream within a dream, a phrase I think a lot of people know about this movie and what it represents, um, they go in and as we go along, we see many of Leo's own struggles and beliefs and thoughts about Maul and what is reality um, that comes into play. And he questions that. And eventually, through some stuff we will get into, he is somehow successful through going to a very deep into the deep depths of his mind and into limbo. He creates a cast an Ocean's Eleven type cast of warriors and directors and writers and actors to make this heist happen. Um, they make it happen and he gets out and uh, he goes back to America. He sees his kids and he spins that top. And what happens to that top? We will talk about that later. And then he sees his kids. Uh, yes, a lot more to get into, but it's a heist movie. We have dreams. You have to question your reality. It's visually amazing. And uh, yeah, that's kind of uh, just the overview about the movie Inception from 2010. Nice and tight and succinct. We have a lot of things to talk about with this movie. So well done there. 
Uh, and yeah, visually amazing. It won the best uh, cinematography Oscar for Wally Pfister. And let's see, a couple others for visual effects and sound editing and mixing. So this thing has the technical quality and it brings the storytelling chops to match, in my opinion. So uh, before we talk about the what we thought of all that, though, we usually like to go ahead and share how we first saw the, these movies and how were these first experiences for y'all seeing Inception? Yeah, I feel like... Uh... Every time we've mentioned the theatrical run of these movies, I'm like in a different place and I see them in a different state, different time of life. Uh, but this one, I remember getting off of a flight uh, from visiting a high school friend right after I had graduated high school and then coming back home to we were in North Carolina at the time. And I think it was the day that this movie came out. And so I told my mom, I think I got like a early morning flight back. And I told my mom, I was like, before we go home, I want to go see this movie. Like, go, we can go do that for like a matinee screening. And then I just remember watching that. And even on like, I didn't really sleep that much before I got on the plane. And then watching this, just like my mind was absolutely blown. <laughs> like it was uh, pretty much when I watched Prestige for the first time, I immediately wanted to run back and get another ticket to watch it again, uh, which I didn't do. I don't think I saw it again in theaters after that. But I did watch it a lot on Blu-ray and DVD when that finally came out while I was in college. But I just remember walking out of the theater. I think my brother was with me, too. And so it was me and my mom and my brother. And we were all just kind of like, what did I just watch? How did he do that? How could that have been a thing that was in someone's brain that they could put pen to paper and then onto a camera? And so like even from the the very first viewing, like I, I really loved it and I really was drawn to it a lot. Um, and then especially on this viewing for this episode, a lot of the stuff about movie making and everything also got my brain moving in a different way because I'd never really watched it that way before. But yeah, just an amazing, amazing theatrical experience. And yeah, it's one of those ones where like we've talked about before where I get something new out of it every time I watch it. Uh, which is uh, the case for pretty much every single one of Nolan's movies. But yeah, very great first experience with this movie. Yeah, for me, it was it was pretty singular as well. And one of the most unique theater going experiences I've gotten to have. And the weird thing is, after how enraptured I was with The Dark Knight, I saw that in 2008 many times in the theater went off to college and then the summer of 2010 rolled around and this movie was not on my radar at all somehow um so it's the middle of the summer in july and a college friend comes and stays with us at my home and then he gets there the first night and then next day he says hey we should go see this movie it's just, like it's really awesome inception you really gotta see it and so my brother and I went with him to go see it at our local theater. And I really didn't have much idea of what was coming. And <laughs> it uh, it really swept me off my feet. And I still hadn't seen anything like it then. I've said this a few times now about Nolan's films, I think most especially with Memento and, and with Inception as well. I haven't really quite seen anything like that sense so i did go see it one more time in the theater once i got back 
into town for for college getting back started up in the fall semester and i took my girlfriend at the time to see it because she hadn't and i said gotta see this movie and so we got in the second screen i have had of it wasn't as great simply because it was mostly empty theater but one of the few people who was there i guess didn't have any childcare options and his toddler was there screaming her head off the whole time and it uh Given what this movie is, that isn't very conducive to being able to keep up with what's going on. So it wasn't, uh, I was very annoyed and frustrated, but somehow I got like one and a half viewings in, I guess. But uh, it was a memorable experience, at least the first time. And I still hold a torch for this movie and love it quite a lot. And every time I go back to it too, like you said, Jake, I it feels so fresh and impactful and just as um, impressive and mind-blowing to me as the first time I saw it in the theater. So it, it holds up for me. Well, I uh, have a pretty dedicated answer to this question. The first year this came out, I saw it. This was around the time I was about to get out of high school, going into college, 2010, so I was really. This is really when I started getting into movies. I said it last podcast. No need to repeat. But I always grew up with movies, loved movies. But really, actually starting to think about it a little more critically and just really loving the visuals for it, writing all that stuff. And I saw this movie three times in theaters. The first year it came out, this is the first movie I ever saw more than twice in the theater. Ever since I watch it, I revisit it once a year, every year. So I've seen this movie fifteen plus times. Now, I've seen it more than once this year because I actually watched it twice for this podcast because I just wanted to feel fresh and feel refreshed and knowing what's going on. But this movie changed how I looked at, quote unquote, good movies for me. Jake and Marshall, I think you both kind of touched on this, but the feeling I had when I left this movie, seeing it for the first time in the theaters, I wanted to walk right back in. I was like, holy cow. I want to revisit every scene. I want to revisit all the moments. I want to see the ending again. I want to hear this crazy score again that's been blasting through all the trailers over and over on TV. And now it kind of redefined when my my brother and I are really close and we talk about movies all the time. And one thing I always tell him is that the key thing with movies for me is like if I think it's a great movie, is it is it more than just fresh? Like, right. So is it more than a six out of 10? Is it, is this a seven, eight, nine or 10 for me? The way I know is if I have that feeling that I had for the first time in my life where I am walking out saying, man, can you just put this thing right back on the screen and let me just run it back? So for me, this has so much importance for me. I know that's very nerdy. We're just talking about movie, but hey, it's my hobby. It's my love. And uh, yeah, this movie really made me think about what it means for me to be a great movie. And that just that itch, that feeling to just revisit, to rewatch. This pretty much set the stage for how I looked at great movies for me personally moving forward. Oh, I love to hear that. D don't worry, you are among friends here. It's okay to sound nerdy and talk about the movies you love and the ones that changed your life because we can both relate to that for sure. Um, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I absolutely know that feeling you're talking about because on my last viewing, uh, ended, cut to black, and the name of the movie popped on the screen. And I'm just at home, punching my fist in the air, just full of adrenaline, and 
everything. So, yeah. And my dad always said that, like, to him, a classic or a movie you love is one that you can just watch over and over again and never get tired of it. And this is definitely one of those movies for me. I guess we can jump into the details. You know, that's that's what it's about, right? The details or else the feel of the place. And maybe we can kick it off with the score since uh, that's one of the things you just mentioned, Jay. The womp womp. Uh, as uh, unfortunately, it's uh, that's the shorthand for it in our collective consciousness these days when you bring it up. But I'm here to declare Zimmer innocent. It's not, you know, it's not this man's fault that trailers and everybody took the thing he did and just decided to run it into the ground. It's like, uh, for me, when I think of that, it's like Weezer and Pinkerton. It's not, don't blame <laughs> Weezer for all the emo or bad emo or anything that came after it because that that album is excellent. I'm sorry. But, you know, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, supposedly. And, you know, a lot of things have tried to imitate but never duplicate this thing and the score. I think uh, I, in my recent Letterboxd review that I just fired off after my last watch, I said it kind of just floats on the undercurrents until it blasts through and gives you the kick for things. Uh, no, not that kind of a kick, but kind of like Vertigo, really. Um, in Vertigo, Bernard Herman has a lot of just like underscore kind of taking you mm-hmm. along. But then with moments like Madeline jumping into San Francisco Bay or when they run into the tower, all of a sudden it's there and it's driving things and it's delivering the emotion and the suspense and everything. So that's uh, that's what I'm thinking of with the score here this time around. I think it's one of like the most, unfortunately, it's one of the most egregious and sad things that came from this movie. There's many beautiful and wonderful things, but Marshall, you're 100% right. The fact that there was a purpose for Zimmer's score, right? For those moments, it's to amplify it. There's two different types of scores you have in a movie. One that amplifies it, where you really got to see the scenes to understand. And then the one that's a little more John Williams-esque, where you know, you're at work and you're having to do some writing, and you can pop in your headphones and listen to a John Williams score. You don't need to see the movie while you listen. It's just beautiful as is. Both are great, but both have a purpose. And not to start off so pessimistic, but yes, unfortunately, this whole type of mood and feel and the tubas and the French horns and the wall, everything that's made fun of and in all the trailers, you know, it made sense for Inception, but it's sad that so many people saw that success and it's like, oh, maybe we should do that. And, you know, it's like maybe the next Minions movie or Jungle Cruise, maybe we don't need to have Inception music in our trailer. Sorry that Minions and Jungle Cruise are catching strays for me. I just was thinking of two random movies. Uh, but like, but yeah, you know, it I've could, noticed it could that, be any movie. I, I right, think they yeah, all do literally it. Yeah. anything. Right. Exactly. They all do it when it's like, why is a rom-com doing the Hans Zimmer tuba trailer music when it's like that had a purpose. So it's just, I mean, that's just my biggest takeaway. The score was wonderfully placed and had a purpose, but it's sad to see people try to like, ex- not exploit it, try to take it and then use it for themselves when it's like, eh, maybe, maybe that wasn't right for your movie. Yeah, the big thing that I I wasn't really as offended with the all the imitators of the the bomb stuff as I was. I don't know what movie started this, but the the slow minor key piano intro with a uh, 
cover of a very well-known song so as to not pay the actual music rights for the real song. And then you get to the actual trailer kicked in and then you keep playing the cut like that trend, like makes me want to rip my hair out now. But the, the bong stuff never really, I just thought it was funny, but it does suit this one super well. I love this score so, so much. Uh, this is another one on the dark Knight episode we talked about. I mentioned how I would just like listen to this all the time for um, background music. If I was writing papers in college, uh, same with this one. And I have the, the ending moments uh, when they're in the airport going through my head right now too. just, it, it combines the, you know, the loud horns and the loud moments with some really good, quiet, emotional moments too. And I just, I think that that it's a great balance of, of a lot of the score elements from Nolan movies that came before and just kind of like reach their peak here, I think. Yeah, and Nolan himself, you know, said after the first time Hans Zimmer played it for him, the track time that uh, he said that's the most, they have turned to his editor and said that might be the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. So uh, it really, yeah, it takes that, what the book talks about as well, uh, the maximal minimalism, and it takes you up and down with that, it takes you on the emotional journey with that track, just like the 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 rest of the score does as well. Jake, since you brought up Dark Knight, um, not which one do you like better, but I'm just curious, which one do you think is more important to the excellence of the movie, Dark Knight score or Inception score? Ooh, um, Putting us on the spot again. Probably Inception, I think, just because of the... And I would need to go back and reread for like a third time the stuff that he mentions in the book, but the elements of the like the ticking time elements and the time signatures to match like all the dream stuff and the kick elements, all of that does play a purpose to tell you where you're at in any given dream within a dream or if you're in reality, I think. And then the obviously we can get more into the um, is it Edith Edith Piaf? Piaf? How do you say it? I've never actually say, heard her name Piaf. spoken. Yeah. Piaf. The nice little touch of uh, Marianne Cotillard playing her in a previous movie. And then in this movie, the main kick noise to wake you up is her song. That was nice. But it's a good audio cue for you as the audience, but also it serves a purpose in the movie for to let them know to wake up. So I think in terms of importance to the, the movie and everything, I would say Inception, but... I love both of them so much. Yeah, I'm glad you went first, Jake. But once you said Inception, I I think that's the right answer, too, because just with how the the soundtrack is weaved into the fabric of this movie, and I'll probably say that phrase again uh, <laughs> a few more times on this episode. But I, the thing with the score that I've somehow periodically forgotten is how the the big, the bouges is the uh, apparently the industry term. If anyone listens to the twenty thousand hertz podcast, what those are and what they came from is just you take that EFPF song and you slow it down to a quarter of its regular speed, and that's where those noises come from. It takes that song; it's the time dilation of the dreaming. It is just pulled from what the song gave Hans Zimmer. He threw in this the, the slowing it down, and it's he just did what the film was asking of him with it. It's like uh, you said earlier, Jay, it has a purpose. It was it's there. And there's a few other pieces of the score, like during the dream is collapsing track that when I actually listen for it, there's a few elements in there that are also that I feel like I can kind of hear in the Edith Piaf song. So 
given that, I mean, uh, I agree that the Dark Knight score is just tremendous and that that Joker theme is something that really is so keyed into the movie. But with what is done here and how it just is so thoroughly intertwined with the story that it's telling, I'd probably have to give the edge to Inception as well. Well, I hate to, I, you know, I know people like disagreement on podcasts, so I hate to not give them that. But I asked out of curiosity because I think that's the right answer. And I know I'm biased, too, since this is my favorite movie of all time. But I do think the fact that the Batman trilogy that Nolan created um, had a precedent was built on an icon a visual of the bats of Batman. And it didn't use any of the previous Batman music and it created something new. But there's so much visually that's also more comfortable for the viewer where the music does amplify it just as much. We could do an entire other podcast on like, well, y'all have talked about it, but like you can talk about the score in dark Knight, which is just as beautiful. But I think it was more important when you're establishing a new world, a new story, a new thought, all this new stuff, the music has to be just as new as well. The music has to be just as engaging and, and just like getting you into this world as possible where it's just not as important in the dark night, where you're comfortable with Batman, you're comfortable with Gotham City, you've been here before, you know this. And so I think that's why I phrased it that way. That's why I phrased the question that way. Not what do you like better, um, what sounds cooler or whatever, but what's more important, you know, what's more important to the movie. And yeah, I think what Hans did in Inception for this brand new story that came from nothing, no book, no play, no musical, no previous movie TV show story, I think it's so valuable and it's really cool what he did here. And he just, it was something so unique and so different and yeah, he knocked it out of the park. Yeah. And don't worry about the disagreement. We all, we haven't talked about all of our thoughts on the ending yet. So I'm sure we'll, we'll have some, some fights coming by the end. Uh, who knows? Maybe, maybe we'll all think the same thing, but uh, <laughs> speaking of the, yeah, the creative process, you know, we have inception itself is uh, always held up as, and as well as heist movies in general, and this is talked about in the Nolan Variations being kind of that meta for telling the process of building a team and making something creative. And in this case, Nolan's discussions with Tom Schoen very heavily leaned into the fact that it's very much about you know, a meta commentary on filmmaking. But, uh, you know, do you all want to take it away on some of your thoughts on that and how Cobb builds his team? Yeah, I have uh, a lot of thoughts about that, like I said earlier. I had never really watched this movie through the lens of, oh, it's like a meta movie about movie making. Um, and then I saw a lot of other commentary about it before we started this podcast. And then obviously when reading the book, uh, there was that quote from Nolan about it. And so I was like, oh, that's interesting. Let me take a look at that. So I have a cast breakdown and what they roughly corroborate to as film staff. So let's see if, what you guys think about this. So obviously we've got Dom, uh, Leo DiCaprio is the director of this picture of implanting an idea in someone's mind. Uh, the audience uh, surrogate is Fisher, Killian Murphy. Dom's producer is Arthur, who is the point man in the movie who takes care of all the tiny little details and gets everything set up. Mr. Eames, uh, Tom Hardy is the actor who uh, at one point, imitates Tom Berenger and then Tom Berenger plays Hardy's imitation of him in a dream within a dream within a dream. It's very turtles all the way down. And then we've got Ariadne, Elliot Page 
is the set designer, prop designer uh, for the whole shebang. Yusuf is the VFX special effects coordinator because he has the whole chemist stuff going on to make that new compound that can make people dream so deeply that they don't know that they're going into different layers of dreaming. Saito, I am going to say, is the studio uh, or the bankroller behind everything, trying to make sure everything comes together uh, because ultimately they're doing a whole job to get paid by this guy and bring about the ruin of another rival businessman. Uh, which you could, I guess, roughly equate that to. You're you're trying to eliminate the competition at the box office if you have to. Yeah, he he um, frames it as saving the world, really, because it's an it's an energy conglomerate he's breaking up. Mm-hmm. That apparently, will have total energy dominance. And also, let's not forget, not just the money for the team. Cobb gets to go home because this guy is also so powerful. Yeah, yeah. And then if you really wanted to kind of get more into the weeds with the theater studio stuff like the that line where he was like oh you don't have to worry about anything because i bought the plane and i bought the airline that could you know be like old hollywood stuff where it seems simple um, studios would just buy theaters and shove their product into the theater and you would get like paramount theaters and universal theaters until the the whole paramount accord stuff happened vertical integration Um, yeah and then so i'm so i guess mall would be like i don't know like self-doubt your uh like the writer's block, I guess. And then I think that's it. Those are all the main, main ones. You can kind of, I guess, Pete Postlewaite, uh as Fisher's father is like the, just the rival studio, rival businessman person, if you wanted to extend the metaphor out that way. But those are kind of all the, the rough equivalents that I could think of. But really the movie is just like an hour straight of, okay, we're going to get the band back together and assemble a team like the scenes in Ocean Eleven. And it's really interesting because with Ocean's Eleven, you can kind of like, even if you've never robbed a bank before, you're like, okay, that guy's the getaway driver. That guy's the guy that takes whatever you steal and can sell it on the black market. And like, you kind of have a rough idea of what those people do. With this, like you don't know anything about this process because the act of inception and instruction is just being explained to the audience up to and including the moment that they're actually doing it. Like it's like two hours into the movie and you're still learning rules about how this world operates. It's almost like the matrix, how they just keep feeding you information and yet it's really easily digestible. And so you're being given all these new jobs and these new ways of looking at the world and ways of performing um performing a job, but they all kind of roughly equivalent to something that you've seen before in a movie, like with the director or producer. So it's easy to follow. And that's really, I think the genius of this movie is it's such a heady concept and it's so much, you know, it's a lot is thrown at the audience and the audience is expected to keep up with a lot right off the bat, but it never becomes too overwhelming. I think it partly because the occupations of all of these people and their roles are all very, kind of easily recognizable even if you don't think about it that much in the the moment uh which is kind of more of like the subconscious uh thing that is tapped into a lot from the movie so that was a lot uh but what do you what do you guys think about any of that yeah it's kind of constantly teaching you how to watch it Mm -hmm, exactly instead of just like at the beginning it keeps doing it but yeah i i one of the thoughts i had uh, on this viewing was that it's not just a way to be like an allegory or a commentary on filmmaking, but the principles of storytelling themselves are critical to the act of inception. 
So everything's about how you present the idea. It's about playing on emotions and expectations and motivations. And that's what anyone who's trying to tell a story or sell you an idea has to do. So that's like kind of the core part of the the middle montage while they're preparing to do the job. And they're having the conversations about, we want this guy to break up his father's empire. How do you sell that business concept as an idea? And Tom Hardy's character Eames is like, well, you got to go to the heart of the thing, which is the relationship with the father. And they're saying, should we try and do a screw you to the old man? And then Cobb comes in and says, no, 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 no. And he's like very directly the the mouthpiece for Christopher Nolan in this moment. He says, positive emotion trumps negative emotion every time. We yearn for reconciliation for catharsis. So they have to try and figure out how to make that something positive so that the idea will take even harder. So that was one of the quotes I really focused in on. And yeah, the emotion of it. I think that might be Nolan's thesis for how he tries to do his stories and everything. And really, it was just fascinating to try and like pick out some of his uh, his storytelling philosophy and core tenets of things. In this movie, having read the book and hearing him extemporize on all his thoughts and opinions and ideas and then seeing inception for the first time since doing that and seeing what came through there uh especially all the stuff on emotion which uh, i could talk about in a little bit but i uh, want to make sure jay gets to have his moment talking about the the, the team moments so first i the only thing i had different than you jake i think ariane i think she's the writer that's the word i came up with Ooh, I think okay she's... yeah yeah, I think she's the writer for the movie, for the movie. Because um, I had them, movie. for mine, I, I kind of was like, yeah. and they'll, they all collaborate and write together, sure. is what I thought just for that scene where they're they're constantly going back forth with like, oh, you've got to talk about his dad, and then, oh, no, if you do that, then what about this? And so, and like some productions are much more collaborative than others, and sometimes it's a, you know, I wrote this script, do not mm-hmm. deviate from these words. Like, it's very Aaron sorkin and then sure. other times it's just free flowing. But yeah, I like I like that idea of her as a writer. Yeah, I mean, again, this might be way too simple for a complex movie. Well, I'll get into that word later. But but I also just feel like even the idea of when you see her writing on the paper, right? He gives her that paper, draw this design, make sure I can't figure out the maze. And just even seeing her put pen to paper, I think just naturally the viewer thinks writing. Um, that's just storytelling. And so I kind of pictured her, you know, Ariane as the writer. But to something Marshall touched on, getting into, you know, making sure you understand the movie and the heist and the team, and then you extrapolated it, well, you kind of, you expounded upon it compared to just all of Nolan's films. For Nolan, I've said this many times, for someone who's such a complex movie director, for him, it's not about the how, it's about the why. And you brought up Marshall the word emotion and for so yeah I know every Oscar season he always wins all the small technical awards that's why his name's always mentioned in the first half of the Oscars because they never win the they never win the actor director picture none of that ever happens it's always sound direction cinematography well not direction um sound cinematography whatever these well and when we had the sound awards separated into two yeah he always won a lot of those awards but man for a guy that's so known for the technical for the audible i just i just think one of the more underrated 
again, I'm I'm not saying he's Steven Spielberg where he's always going to tug on your heart and make you feel like, you know, you want to go hug your mom and kiss your dad on the cheek. You know, I get it like that. You know, he's not he's not the emotional director that's always going to make you feel the feel the feels for your family. But I just think there's moments in his movies, especially Interstellar's not to get off track, but Interstellar has a lot connected to mm-hmm. Inception. Inception. I mean, it has a lot connected to Inception when you think about how the music and the acting and the storyline impacts the way they want you to feel. I just think it's really more important to not think about the technical, the how, where Nolan doesn't like get into, like how about when they this little box where they press a button and they go into the next stream. Nolan doesn't spend 40 minutes saying, well, if you look at the wire and you understand the, the science behind why this, al-. no, 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 no. Nolan just says, hey, trust me. Let's go into this stream. Let's go into the next stream. I'm not going to try to give you all the details and bore you to death about the science behind it. And so I don't know how I got on this tangent, but yeah, to me, it's 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 something special <laughs> to me where it's not necessarily about the how this is happening. How is this team? How are they pulling off the heist? Right. It's not Ocean's Eleven. Ocean's has been brought up multiple times where we're very detailed. How are we going to do this? Nolan doesn't do that. Nolan's more about wanting you to feel why he's doing or why are the characters wanting to do this? And so, um, yeah, anyway, I, I think Jake, you did a great job describing all the different pieces to the team. And I think it's really special seeing and trying to understand why everyone is impacted and wanting to do their job in the heist. Yeah, I I totally agree with you, Jake, with the emotion thing. And uh, my last bit about the team actually is um, I think I pretty much tracked with Jake's uh, assigning of the roles, but uh, on a more meta of the meta level, Ariadne, when we're in reality, supposedly, um, she kind of acts as the audience surrogate and is asking questions for us of Cobb yeah, all the time. Yeah, She's uh, pelting yep. the questions. You know, we're learning yep. about everything along with her. And then the, she is the architect of the dreams is there to imagine everything in the dream just like you know when you're watching a film that can open up the audience's imagination and lead you to think of anything you want but yeah with the emotion of it and jake and i have talked about this before uh i really i disagree with the fact that like you know everyone just thinks he yeah, has movies are cold and emotionless and, and just brutal which there are certainly brutal elements of things but um i think he can do emotion and for this movie, emotion is very much the emphasis and foundation of a successful inception. And yes, in the book, um, it's something he talks about all the time. It's the emotion of the thing. It's the emotion of the thing. And it's at the forefront of everything he does when you hear him talk about it. And so I, I do disagree with that. And I've been thinking about that a lot. And <laughs> just uh, I have a lot more thoughts I could probably go in on about that. But yeah, like I really can feel the emotion and it can probably be into the fact that, yeah, like Nolan is a filmmaker who looks like me and has everything and, and the representation of everything and all that. But, you know, I mean, like the, this film, at least among his, is still pretty highly rated among audiences. If you go to Letterboxd, IMDb, uh, I mean, there's also conversations to be had about representation there on and who votes and things. But, you know, but they're critically successful and, uh, you know, there's plenty of critics and fine that's fair it's not not everything's going to work for everybody but there's something there that works clearly um even if there are plenty of people out there who will slag it off and you know that's movies people people like what they like people don't like what they don't like but it definitely works for me 
and I disagree with the the unemotional <laughs> Christopher Nolan heartless bastard interpretation. <laughs> hey, that that's why it's fun to talk about movies. We don't have to all agree. This is what makes the medium so fun and so just cool to dig into it and see what people think, you know. So certainly, I'm, I'm, certainly. With, I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah. And I'll sound like a broken record here, but I back to the emotional aspect and the the quote that Marshall brought out about positive emotion trumps negative emotion every time. We all yearn for catharsis and reconciliation. Um, and you bringing up that that's you can kind of see that as a lens to view his whole filmography. Yeah, like you can look at stuff and be like, oh, he likes the the closed loop narrative because that's the mystery box element of it, right? Like the timeline lines up in Memento, the timelines will come back together eventually in Tenet. Uh, the dream is gonna, you know, stop collapsing upon itself in Inception, and for all of his movies. So there is that, and there's a nice little neat bow on the end of it for everything. But really, what all those things provide is catharsis and reconciliation for all of those characters if you close the loop. And so, like, what all these people want is just like a good ending that brings catharsis and closure. And he talked a lot about in the Tom Schoen book about how guilt is the driving factor among a lot of his protagonists. It's what drives Cobb. It's what drives, uh, I'm forgetting his name in uh, Interstellar, but it's what drives Cooper. McConaughey. Cooper. It's what drives yeah. Cooper in Interstellar. It's what drives um, absolutely the protagonist in Tenet to an extent. Obviously, definitely it's what drives uh, Memento. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. So, and Insomnia to an extent. And even here, what I think is really interesting about catharsis and reconciliation is there's a really beautiful moment with Killian Murphy and Pete Postlewaite uh, at the end where he's dying. He's there in like what, like three dreams deep basically. And this is after Dom has told Fisher that he is dreaming in an attempt to get him to have another idea incepted in him to make him go deeper yeah, to try and keep his subconscious off of them because he's yeah. trained to protect his mind. So on some level, he knows that he's dreaming. So he knows that what he's experiencing isn't real because his dad's already dead. But in this dream, Apostle Waite is talking to Killian Murphy and he's saying, I was disappointed. And then you, you think Fisher, Killian Murphy, is he thinks that his father's disappointed in him for not living up to expectations. And he says, I know you were disappointed that I couldn't be you. And then Pete possibly says, no, I was disappointed that you tried. And like, they both cry and the music swells and it's a really, really emotional moment. But then as you're watching it, you realize like, that's not real. That's yep. it's what he wants in his dream. And it's what he wants to have. And then on a really yeah. big meta movie making level, like you can get catharsis by going to the movies for something that you're experiencing in your life. And you can watch characters go through stuff that you might not ever experience, but you still, if it's a good enough movie and it's a well-crafted enough movie, you can experience the same thing that they're experiencing and you'll cry at the right places. You'll cheer at the right places. And like, that's a type of emotional catharsis that like is a very weird human thing. Cause like we're experiencing that through someone that we don't even know and something that we've never had happen. And like, it's a really like unique thing to art and to movies in specific. And that just like bowled me over this time that I watched it because I'm like, that's such a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful moment, but it's not real. And he knows it at that point on some level, but he's still doing it anyway because it feels good. Well, yeah, this gets back into the the word you said, guilt. Um, 
Jake. Now, I have to push back. You said guilt is involved in insomnia to an extent. I think you need to go. You need to just go in for it, Jake. Guilt. (laughs) Definitely. The whole movie is guilt. Yeah. 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 It's not. It's not to an extent. My gosh. No, no. There is a ton of guilt in insomnia. No, no, no. I'm just messing with you. But um, yeah, absolutely. That that feeling is very important. And um, I just want to tack on. You hit everything beautifully. I just want to tack on um, the music. It's just to tie in what we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. The way that it, the way that it builds in the scene. I mean, I just rewatched this two days ago, and oh my gosh, the music's simple, right? It, it's it's not some big expansive violins and orchestra, whatever, you know, right. score which has its place. But man, is the music so effective in this scene with a father and son? Again, emotional. Um, so Jake, hundred percent. There's so much going on here, and they're wanting to tug at your heartstrings, and it just knocks it out of the park. It's so good here. Yeah, this um, this time around for me was an emotional double whammy because this is the first time I viewed Inception since uh, one being a now father of two kids, and also the first time I've watched Inception since my father passed. So all of it was coming at me, and it hit me again in even more ways. So. Um, even with me having those, the, luckily my wife is alive. Let's be clear here. That's not, I'm not all the way (laughs) relating to everything in this movie on every level, but it is pretty wild that I was moved by just a couple guys, ultimately just talking to their subconscious. I mean, that's when you strip it down, that's what this movie really is. And it's just crazy that you can get what you get from this. So I also think it's interesting how we've been talking a lot about Memento and Interstellar and some other films as well, but that's another thing that I really kind of took with me um, that you could really make a, just an unofficial trilogy out of these three movies with, with all the things they do share. You've got time being the enemy, like you've in inception, you, the concept of you keep going deeper and getting more and more time. That's the, that's the solution that cracks it when they feel like the job's been lost, but Ariadne comes up and says, no, we can go down one level deeper into limbo. And then we have enough time to save Fisher and get this job done. In Interstellar, you know, you've got going into the gravity well of these certain planets and trying to do the job quickly enough to come back and not lose 20 years of your life. That happens anyway. I think the line from Memento directly is, how do I heal if I can't feel time with Leonard and his condition? And Tom Schoen picks up, like once I was going through my highlights and picking up on all these threads, Tom Schoen honestly ties Interstellar, Memento, and Inception together quite a lot. And so that's probably the, the seed of that idea for me as well. I mean, I have a whole lot of things on this, um, but maybe the representative quote uh, of this concept of time show I'm talking about it is um, so Cobb is talking about the moment in the middle of the film where he had to leave and go on the run for being suspected. Maul killed herself, but had him framed because she wanted she thought they were still dreaming and wanted him to wake up, too. But he's having to run and he didn't see his kids. He didn't see their faces one last time. And it's no one taking that uh, Tom Schoen's description of the Tesseract and interstellar being this endless eternal hall of parental regret and then like nolan takes that and he amplifies the heck out of that in interstellar but tom Schoen's quote was um yeah the test act was an eternal hall of parental regret forcing him cooper to replay opportunities missed things not said paths not taken like leonard shelby's looped life it has the timelessness of trauma endlessly relived but unlike the limbo into which shelby finds himself cast Cooper is not entirely without agency. And if that doesn't just mesh all those things together, 
especially trauma endlessly relived and Cobb sticking himself in that elevator to go up and down the various memories, trying to change things he's never going to be able to. I don't know what he can do to tie it together. So in the spirit of that, I have a little game for y'all. I took a few other quotes out of the book and I'd like y'all to get, try to guess which movie they're about to fully prove my point here. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Oh so, boy. All right. Yeah. I'm ready. All right. The, the first one I have is Tom Schoen. The whole film, like many of Nolan's, is a study in atrocious guilt, false consciousness, denial. So, Jay, you can take the first crack since, Jake, you've read the whole book. But, Jay, you can, out of those three choices, which one do you think that one was originally about? All of them. <laughs> uh, well, fair enough. But uh, specifically, it was about Memento. But, but yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. Memento. I got it. Yeah. And then... Uh, next one is he can have safety or he can have certainty, but he cannot have both. Oh, I got oh. this one. Uh, safety, certainty. I'll let Jake take it. I think I got it. That's got to be one of the one of the Batman. I think the, only one of the three choices for between Memento, Inception, Interstellar. Oh, okay. right, right. Uh, safety. I'm chopping at the bit. Come on. Yeah. You got it, I'm going to say Interstellar. Yes. It's got to be that. Yeah. Yeah. It is Memento. Again. No, oh, God. No. <laughs> no. Wow. This is um, fun. Let's see. I think I'll I'll go with, with two more here. So definitely, Jay, give the first answer for this one because Jake, Jake might recognize this one. So no okay. one said in the book, what I've found is the people who let the film wash over them get the most out of it. They're not approaching it like it's a crossword puzzle or like they're going to get a test afterward. Mm-hmm. I think with the structures I've used, when you use a non-linear plot structure and with the genres I've worked in, you do invite more scrutiny. What are the, so it's, um, what are the three? Memento, Inception, or Interstellar. Which one do you think that one's? Well, what was, the, you use the phrase non-linear story structure? When you use a non-linear plot structure. Plot structure. Okay, so, I mean, I was going to say Interstellar, but... I- I'm going to go Memento again. You said nonlinear story structure, so I think Memento. All right. Uh, Jake, I think you recognize the answer, though, here. Yeah, I think that's Memento. Oh, oh. Uh, well, no, it's it's this this quote was about Interstellar in the context of Interstellar. Wow. We are bad at this game. All right, Marshall, <laughs> cut all of this. Delete it from the. Yeah, no, we're not doing any of this. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I got the last one for y'all, and uh, I had okay. to. I think I had to Redemption. cut change one word to try and because uh, it seems a little there's one word here that's a little too makes it a little too obvious so uh, Ooh, rather okay. there's Christopher Nolan again talking about one of the movies rather than the event being committed by a character you never actually meet it's been committed by somebody you've spent a lot of time with it's more horrifying you've seen more than you realized you had you've seen the person you've seen them doing Wait, it what Hold on. Um, and it's Inception, Memento, or Interstellar? Inception, Memento. I guess I'll say, well, is this person writing? Ooh, are they acting like, okay, I'll say Inception. Jake, you go. I'm going to go ahead and say Memento again, but I, I might be wrong. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm pulling the rug out from under y'all because that quote was actually about Psycho talking about. Oh my <laughs> gosh! All right, 
I'm gonna unplug my mic and leave right now. I'm gonna take uh, my ba- take my the, basketball uh, home. Oh. But in the con- no, in the no, context no. of the mur- the he says the murder being committed by a character you never actually meet, uh, yeah. oh. you spend a lot of time with oh. being that, that twist, and so that one I thought really does apply to Inception because sure, you know the the twist comes down that the reason Cobb insists that Inception is possible he reveals is because he's done it before, and that's unfortunately what led Mal to kill herself because he, yep. the, the idea was your world is not real, so. Thank you all for playing. I, uh, ooh, I, I'm, <laughs> I really appreciate y'all coming along with that. But um, just, yeah, just the fact that Memento, Inception, Interstellar—they're so entwined. Uh, I guess the last thing I had to say about that is, I guess the you could call it the Dead Wives trilogy. Um, and we, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we had to go there. Yeah, um, yeah. but uh, yeah, thanks for indulging me, you guys. Do you think Memento and Interstellar are more connected to Inception than Tenet? I mean, I just said pretty much yes, I think. <laughs> That's what I think. But, okay, fair, yeah. fair. <laughs> um, but I could say with the with the Dead Wives, uh, not to try and monopolize the whole thing here, but we could talk about Maul and she kind of being fridged here, but I, I feel like she's more than that. I can go into my apologist shtick, but just the concept and character of Maul. Did y'all take any notes or have anything to say on that? I have a little bit. I watched this with Taylor, uh, my wife today, and uh, she is not like the biggest Christopher Nolan fan, but like every time this movie comes on, she just like sits up and I was like, man, this is such a good movie and I can't deny it. And it's so great. And just, but then everything with Maul coming up, there's a line, uh, where is it? It's towards the end with uh Cobb's final scene with with Maul and he was saying I could never imagine you in all of your complexity and right away then Taylor was like oh so that's Nolan calling himself out for not writing women well huh and I was like I I guess (laughs) um fair hey self-awareness yeah right (laughs) well and guess how about another director who's talked about his issues with casting and writing female actors Alfred Hitchcock. Yes, yeah. There's yeah. a whole there was a whole movie right. made about that. So you're making a great point connecting and, him to another big movie director. And the note, the other note that I made about her, the biggest one that I thought was, Maul is Kim Novak in Vertigo, right? Because she's not real. She's a project. Every time she shows up, she's a projection of what Dom wants her to be, and it's like what his subconscious imagines her to be or wants her to right. be in that moment. Just like the way that. Jimmy Stewart makes her into the image that he wants uh, no matter what. Once he finally figures out like, you know, change your hair, change your clothes, change the way you act around me. Like it, it I can kind of let the, I can never imagine you in your complexity writing kind of off the hook a little bit just here because that's what these protagonists are doing. Like they can't imagine them as women. They can't imagine them as people. They're only like fragments of their imagination or subconscious or like, half-remembered dreams in both Jimmy Stewart and Leo DiCaprio's cases. And so I think that it's, yeah, like that, I don't know. It, it It is fridging a little bit, but I don't know if it's as bad as some of the other ones that we've gotten with some of uh, the, the Dead Wives trilogy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can just get it out of the way. And uh, again, it's a, yeah. it's a Christopher Nolan and Women Apologist Hour with me. I will say, not really a correction, but 
something I need to say because I forgot to bring it up in the dark night. I was, I was going to play it for some last, but Rachel is 100% fridging. I have nothing for that. I was, didn't have anything to say in defense. It's such a stone cold fridging that it does the double duty of messing up two male protagonists, you know, <laughs> both, both uh, Bruce Wayne and Harvey Dent. So with that, to hopefully sate any of the people going to throw rocks at me. Um, yeah, Maul, I, yeah, I don't think here just kind of with maybe to tie it to what I said about uh, Julia in The Prestige, you know, yes, she's kind of been fridged, but there really kind of is a purpose. And, you know, she's not, it's not just because she's like Maul being bad than her name itself, not just being because she's a woman. Her very appearance heralds bad things are going to be happening soon. And it's because of Cobb. It's that dark part of his subconscious where he's keeping her alive. And the reason his projection of her is just basically evil is because it's infused with all the guilt and all the pain and all the regret he feels over what he did. So she's an avatar for his self-punishment. It's not that Maul herself is bad. Everyone talks about, you know, Arthur says she was lovely. She was amazing. Like she came up with the concept of the totem. She was apparently brilliant and wonderful. Yes, definitely very complex. But it's Cobb that's turned her into what she became and ultimately how his mind projects her. So, yes, I guess uh, also a meta commentary on maybe Nolan <laughs> letting trying to get himself off the hook. But Tom Schoen writes as well about Maul and says, no mere love interest or romantic subplot. The character of Maul is the pivot on which Inception's feat of narrative engineering rests. Her backstory entwining with the central mystery of what Inception is exactly and why it is so dangerous. So that's to me how she's different from a typical quote unquote, fridging. She's not just a dead wife. She has an integral role in the story, including a part, the part near the end in Limbo, which I think I'll probably touch on when I talk about the ending specifically, where she's coaxing Cobb to surrender to the dream world, stay with her. Her character does matter. And Marion Cotillard's performance, just brilliant. So that's how I feel about it. No, I think y'all both put it, y'all both kind of laid it out very, very articulately. I, I, I think with Maul, the the big thing that Marshall you hit on that is so important is that this is not Maul in reality. This is a projection of what Dom envisions her. Again, going back to the theme of the podcast, guilt. The theme of Nolan, guilt, whatever. You know, this is this is how he's projecting her in his mind. Everything, well, everything. Not well, it could be everything depending on how you look at the movie and what we discuss uh, about the ending. But um, whether it's 70% or 100% of this movie, a big chunk of this movie is in the mind of someone, is a projection, is the thoughts of someone's minds. How many times have, have you guys or anyone listening to this podcast had a dream where you have someone you love or you care about or you know very well and they're in your dream? And they're taking actions and they're doing things and they're saying things to you that feel so real and rich and true. And then you wake up and then there's a part of you that's like, man, why did insert name here? Talk to me that way. Do this to me. And then you eventually, you know, catch yourself and you're like, all right, no, 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 no. That was a dream. But yeah, this is tapping into something that the viewer we can all connect with is that feeling of projecting something onto someone, having it in our dream, thinking and feeling and truly believing it's actually happening. And 
this person's actually saying or doing this to me. And uh, yeah, it's beautiful and it's dark, but true in the way that Nolan really makes you feel, you really feel like Maul is this true entity. But every single time, I'll say it this way, because we do see Maul visually, we see her in reality. Well, if you believe it's reality in some flashbacks where it is in reality but in terms of when she is talking we do we never hear Maul talking in reality um we only hear her in Dom's visions and her thoughts other than when they're on the ledge before she dies throws off her shoes falls off the ledge great acting by Leonardo DiCaprio in that scene by the way that's beautiful oh yeah yeah, yeah. just felt uh, the emotion I, there for that one Thank you. I could go yeah. 30 minutes on just that <laughs> sequence. That's amazing. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's really interesting the way that uh, they present Maul to us in the way that we have people in our lives. We all know this, have dreams, have feelings. And that second we wake up, um, you think it's real and it's not. And just the way we, you have to cope with that. Yeah, I've definitely caught some flack and dirty looks and had to endure some tough mornings for things that my dream self did in my wife's dreams for some reason. So I definitely uh, can relate to that. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, um, what else have we not covered before we hit the ending? I've got I've got the script here and, and storytelling if we want to talk about some of that. I have a few things. Yeah, I would just say that Kind of like how Marshall has talked about his relationship with uh, picking up Fixionis. I've seen this movie like five, six times probably at this point, including the one that I did for this podcast. And still, I'm always like, oh, yeah, that's what happens next. That's the that plot strand that follows this moment. Like, I, I feel like I'm constantly like re-remembering it in the same way that the Boris protagonists remember or what Nolan says whenever he picks up a, a Boris short story. And so that it has a very dreamlike quality to it in the storytelling as well. And we mentioned earlier the, just how this keeps like, it's a very exposition heavy movie and it just keeps ex throwing concepts at the audience right and left, even like two hours in and it never feels too complicated for you to grasp because of another thing that we talk about a lot on this podcast is that the cut is the greatest special effect and the way that this is edited and the way that it is structured both in the script and the way that it's uh, presented to the audience member lends itself very easily to something like a dreamlike structure. And it's especially apparent in that scene where Cobb is explaining to uh, Elliot page about, picture a dream you can never remember the very early moments of your dream think about how you got here like where were we just now in this dream you don't know you can't remember and that's so like i was also reminded of that moment with that tootsie test that we were talking about last episode where nolan you know told tom Schoen like go watch tootsie and tell me how much time do you think passes in that movie and you can't really do it because the way that we watch movies and the way that we process stuff is we want it to be like a linear experience, but our brains also just process like, oh, okay, like that walk could take X amount of time, but then that event could take longer, could take shorter. Following it doesn't know. And it's all about how you cut it and it's all about how you present it. 
and the concept of a dream uh, also just it lends itself very well to that and then just the way that the script is written too with like layering everything on top of each other with the different timelines i can't imagine like they talked about the process of writing memento and how he gave the script to his wife and like every five minutes she was like wait this can't be right and then she would flip back to the last page and was like oh, okay no this makes sense like I'm just picturing that, but like times a thousand while he was writing this and trying to line up all the different dream sequences and stuff. But then it all works because it's all just it, it's written well, but it also relies visually on the audience understanding editing and understanding just film as a medium. Right. And uh, I am my heart saying again, you you took the one of the main things I was going to say already with the cut being the greatest special effect and. It, yeah, like, uh, like especially with this, um, with all the bells and whistles and everything, all the slow motion, all all the hotel hallways spinning, you know, with the simple cut that takes you into another dream to another layer. It can do that. You know, everything's starting up. You don't know how you got there. And this might be the greatest example of Nolan's uh, <laughs> presentation of that idea. And it was so much fun to watch it here. Uh, the vision on this, I, again, we read the shooting script, so everything was much more fleshed out and ready to go. But even so, like I said, with the Dark Knight, the vision is still just so totally immense and delivers on that promise. For me, it's absolutely airtight. Like it's there. I mean, I know there's like so nitpicky questions about everything that people have. And just to, you go to the IMDb questions page and people are like, how did he do this? I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. But like every line almost in this movie <laughs> has a purpose. You know, um, like leaving the breadcrumbs playing fair uh, in my letterbox review, I called it like checkoffs every single line. Uh, <laughs> and it kind of applies all the kind of the tactics he learned along with Jonathan, the prestige, you know, Cobb seemingly telling you the story of Maul's death straight up the first time when there's that break in the first dream. He's telling Ariadne, but he's showing what he's really doing is showing your bare hands to the audience with nothing else visible. Um, trying to fool you when we find out the real story later. Honestly, every bit of guile and storytelling now that Nolan has is like brought into this and he puts it on full throttle and you can tell it's like everything, giving it everything he's got and we get to enjoy it. It's just, yeah, like it's, it's dense. Sure. And there's so much ex exposition. Yes. And things are coming at you so quickly all the time, but it gives you every single thing you need. Like we talked with in Vertigo and the very quiet sections in Vertigo, this also demands your attention in a different way by constantly going all the time. This movie just flows by so quickly. But yeah, you've got to be listening as well as watching closely to get everything you need. And I think you touched on it, Jake. I see it. Yeah, it's kind of respecting the audience enough to keep up despite all these things that are being thrown at you. And I feel like there's a difference between just exposition for its own sake versus exposition that in this case it's setting up everything that's coming up and it all gets used up nothing's wasted you get the payoff for pretty much everything that this talks about and it justifies its existence so yeah this script is something else and uh shame it didn't win for original screenplay but it definitely got nominated and it did win the writers guild uh, award so i don't know i think the king's speech won the original screenplay so i'm gonna put that down to the politicking Anyway, <laughs> that's not the point. Well, y'all are going to think we planned this beforehand, but Marshall like stole my thunder with everything 
related to this I wanted to talk about. So, (laughs) no, this was not pre-planned. But one thing that I do want to hit on, uh, Marshall, you talked about the fact that there was a vision and it was airtight. You used those two phrases. I think that's really key here because... The people that complain about, oh, well, if you really think about what it would be to go into a dream, what would the science really look like? This is conversation for another time, but I'm going to touch on it. If you go and look, go to Rotten Tomatoes, everyone, don't stop listening to the podcast, but pull up another tab on your phone, go to Rotten Tomatoes, and go look at the Rotten reviews for Interstellar. Again, another movie, but you know what a lot of the rotten reviews are for Interstellar? Well, if you think about a black hole, this is how it actually should think. This is how it should be. Well, a black hole's like this. Well, if you're in space and this happens and this happens and technically, you know what? If I want to know how a black hole works, I'm going to watch the Discovery Channel. I'm going to go read a book. I'm not going to watch a movie that is trying to entertain me. And so bringing it back to Inception, to your point about the idea of just, you talked about Marshall, the idea of just people complaining about Inception and, well, if we have this technology, well, this is how it would, you know what? I don't care how it would really work. If you give me a compelling storyline, it's logical. You lay it out correctly. I'm on board. Bring me on that boat. Bring me on that bandwagon. And I'm happy to be on the ride if it's a good story, if it's told correctly. And um, this word has been used by, I think, including me, by all of us. I want to say this. I don't think Inception is a complicated movie. Again, call me crazy. I think it's unique. I think it's patient. But at the core, I think it's pretty easy to understand what's happening in Inception. And that's what makes it so special and so brilliant. And why it's one of my favorite movies of all time. Well, my number one movie of all time is you can go look at Charlie Coffin movies. You can go look at David Lynch movies. I'm not throwing shade at them. I'm just saying those are two guys who will throw stuff at the screen and say hey you figure it out it's like wait what well like you gave me nothing why do i have to figure this out this doesn't serve a purpose to the story you're trying to tell with christopher nolan he tells a story and he says hey domcom's gonna walk off and see his kids and we're gonna we're gonna move the camera and focus on the top and we're gonna let you figure out what's going on here Shoot, let's go back to the beginning of the movie. We're just going to throw you right in on the beach. And this guy is just shoring up. He is being taken by some officers, police officers, whatever, whatever you want to call them. And um, you you better get up to speed. But Christopher Nolan's trusting his viewers without abusing the trust of his viewers. And that is the key crux of Christopher Nolan. He trusts his viewers, but he doesn't abuse this trust. Where I have heard so many showrunners and so many movie directors were 10, 15, 20, sometimes one year later, where it's like, hey, why did you do this? And then they say, oh, I just wanted the 
viewer to figure it out. Uh, I don't know why I did that. No. Give us a reason for why we need to figure that out, why we need to trust you. And so all that to say, I just think Interstellar has a lot of places for the movie viewer, the movie watcher to figure out what's going on. And I love that for Nolan because I'm so used to so many movies just kind of giving you all the details, all the situations, and just making sure that you know all the details. But yeah, Inception just does a beautiful job of trusting the viewer for a purpose. And uh, I've gone on too long. I feel like I've talked too much, but it's a beautiful beautiful (laughs) way they lay it out. So yeah. Well, you say I, I agree with you about Nolan giving us what we need and kind of respecting the audience to keep up in that way. I, I mean, obviously, I just said it too, but that that rings true even more because with uh, some of his comments about like the ambiguous endings he does and everything, and the Nolan variations he talks about. Uh, I've mentioned this before on the on the podcast. He told the media his in- interpretation of Memento's ending back when it was a, on the festival circuit. And his brother pulled him aside. I was like, don't everyone tell anyone what you think, because all they're going to care about is what your interpretation is. And he said, Jonathan was right, that the important thing is that I know what I think, like what I have my interpretation of events. I don't just put an ambiguity at the end of the movie just to do it every single time. I know what for me, what the version of events is, but I leave it for people to think about it themselves. So. I think with everything you were touching on too, Jay, it, it might be the perfect segue into us talking about endings. And Jake, unless you have anything else to add before we go there, um, I think since I stole Jay's thunder with talking about the script, uh, he can go first and talk about his interpretation of the ending if we're ready to get going on that. Yeah, just one more thing that we've tried sure. to touch on a little bit beforehand. Um, this is his first original plot since following i believe that has not been based on a comic book or another movie or anything else like that uh since following right um so like it really is his like blank check movie after dark knight and so is that why Cobb is the recycled name from following here or i don't know if he ever gave an answer to that but i'm curious Mm, as to your thoughts on that oh yeah yeah I mean, I did say when we, in our following episode, the very first thing I said was uh, that one was actually the first time a character named Cobb incepted somebody. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, we're, we're back around. The circle has come around and we've completed it. And now Cobb has gone and done it two more times. So I hadn't really thought about that. I did take note of this was his first yeah, totally original story from himself since following because Memento, he wrote the screenplay by himself, but it was based on that short story that he asked his from brother his, to write. From his brother, yeah. So so definitely yeah it's kind of funny when you put it that way like you can't just stop naming characters Cobb what are you gonna <laughs> come on man someone someone incepted the idea of Cobb into his head and he can't get it <laughs> out uh, but that was all that I had on that one and we can we can move on to the juicy details why people are listening this long uh, that ending though go ahead Jay the floor is yours we're, is Dom gonna... Cobb dreaming at the end or is he not <laughs> Yeah, Gosh, that's the, that's the question. Like, <laughs> I mean, like, I've, this is one of the biggest questions I've had in my life the past uh, 13 years. Um, no. OK, so. OK, I'm going to keep it general. Because I cannot wait to hear what you all think. This is just I'm going to open it up with this. People are going to be mad. But this is what makes movies fun. I really 
don't think I don't think it matters if it happened or not. I think yeah. <laughs> no, we can't all agree. This is no fun. We need you, we need disagreement. You went with the you went with the no answer. You you went off the no, yeah. no, you didn't go for the you didn't go for the binary choice. No, no. Please can, no, no, I, I no. like it. Please keep going. Right. Yeah. All right. I'll I'll keep it short and then I'll jump back in. I want to hear what y'all think. But my thing is I just really have no care whether you think it happened or not. I don't think that's honestly, I don't think that's the purpose of the movie. I think it's totally okay. You think it happened, you think it didn't. We're in a dream, we're in a nut. That's kind of just this whole movie where Dom Cobb is dealing with his word of the day. What's the um, Sesame Street? Uh, well, that's letter. I don't know. Like there was a letter of the day or word of the day, whatever. It's going to be G, is, right? Yeah. G is the letter of the day, grief. It doesn't really matter. And man, I, I, I was talking to my girlfriend earlier about this, just the idea. We, we were arguing about this because I told her I was going on the podcast talking about Inception, and she was firm on it is a dream. I'm like, why are you so firm? And I, I, I push her. I asked the follow-up questions. And to me, then she pushed back at me. It was great. I just don't think it really matters. That's the weird thing. I think it's such a great conversation to have, but in a weird backwards way. I think it's a great conversation to have, but it's a dumb conversation to have because it really doesn't matter. Okay, I'm going to be quiet. Y'all go. I can't wait. You can take it, Jake. I'm, I'm going to be processed process being called dumb on my own podcast. I'm just kidding, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. No, it's fine. Go ahead. <laughs> I am not going to uh, spoil the letterbox review that I chose for this because this kind of touches on it. But I will point out uh, the quote that uh, Christopher Nolan himself gives in the Nolan variations about this top spinning. And he says that they chose to cut it in a very specific place. And he's talking about the ambiguity of the audience looking at it and figuring out, is it spinning? Is it going to drop? Is he dreaming? Is he in reality? For my money, I think that we see the top start to wobble a little bit more right before the cut. So I think that it is real, but Jake, I am, you're overanalyzing. But I am, but, but I am with you in that I don't think that that matters because, again, we're talking about guilt, we're talking about grief, and we've been talking about uh, reconciliation and catharsis this whole recording session. I think at that point, Cobb has gotten what he wanted and he has made peace with himself regardless of if he is dreaming, if he's stuck in limbo, or if he made it out and he's in reality. And I think he's content with himself because he's finally able to be with his children and enjoy them and live his life unencumbered by any guilt or anything that he feels about Maul. And he can know that he successfully pulled off a job, regardless of if he made it out or not the job is done and the job happened so i don't think it matters and i think that the what you bring to it with that is kind of how you i don't know kind of a litmus test to see how you can like view the whole movie really like if you if you're really hung up on is it real or is it not you're 
I don't know, maybe you're still like looking for like stuff to be matched up pretty nicely with everything in your own life, or maybe you just really want something to be matched up nicely. But or if you're just content to be like, no, you know what, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe he's just happy. Then you're you're good with, you know, some ambiguity in your life. I don't know. But I think the the quote that he he ends on where he's just like, yeah, it cuts in a very specific place. And it's almost as if to say, like, we're done. That's final regardless of what you think happens or not. Um, and I can go into a little bit more of it with the letterbox review that I chose, but yeah, in the end, I don't really think it, uh, it matters all that much. Cause I don't think that it matters to Cobb. All right. Well, I think the same thing, or at least I did for like all these years until having to figure out what I really have always believed with this. So, <laughs> I'm here to give the people what they want. Someone wants somebody to take a side. And luckily, Let's fight. I Let's have fight. one. Yeah. Right before I, I say what I think, um, one thing, one quote from Nolan I love from the Nolan Variations about the ending of, well, it's actually, uh, he's talking in context of following in Memento. He says, as you look at the first couple of films I did, the conclusion is built into the very fabric of the film. It's not even a habit of mind so much as it is a survival mechanism. And I thought, I think that applies here to Inception, and I just like that quote. I wanted to share it. So not really going to have too, many com- too much commentary on it, but I liked, I, just, I love how that quote flows. All right. But for me personally, and from, I think the seed of the idea of, like, I did see a, a, an interview that Nolan did, like, right very soon after I had seen Inception, and he said the thing that he's been pretty consistent about, and he said, ultimately, in the end for Cobb, it doesn't matter He's whether he's dreaming or not. He finally has that inner peace. He does have that. He finally had that acceptance in limbo with Maul saying goodbye and he's done the thing. And so I was like, all right, cool. Yeah, I'll I'll just accept that and make that what I think. But really, every time I watch this movie, every time that it ends and from the very first second that that screen went black, the very first time I saw it, for me, it has always been that Cobb is in reality. And for me, he just he has to be back there. I still feel that way every single time. Maybe it's me. I need a happy ending, the catharsis or whatever, but it has to be real. And since I finally accepted that fact of what <laughs> I think about it, that's what I, and that's how I've always felt. I have to come up with why. So fortunately, I've done that, too. So there are plausible explanations and evidence you could use to pull out that Cobb is still dreaming. And beside, also besides Nolan saying it doesn't matter to Cobb anymore, which also, yes, which I believe if we go back to the Memento episode, that's kind of what I say about that. As well, it doesn't matter whether Leonard did it or not. He's finally got clear of Teddy. Anyway, here's why Cobb is still in, or Cobb is in reality to me. Cobb still dreaming at the end for me would invalidate the stakes. And there's so much discussion in Nolan variations from Nolan himself about how do you create stakes for this movie? How do you do this? It's kind of like the Matrix. Like it's this virtual, not real place. But how do you create the stakes? Otherwise, he'd just be a madman, just to get rid of that guilt and replacing it with some self-deception to be happy. And he's sort of already self-deceiving himself throughout the movie anyway. Being in a dream for me at the end would kind of be status quo. There wouldn't be any growth or change to how he's been already. Um, His dreams during the movie are him telling himself that he can change or fix the things, the bad things that happen in his life that he can never do that he can never fix them or change them so once he accept finally accepts that whatever happened happened uh he can finally confront that guilt which he does and move on and then 
you know, another thing for me was audiences tend to not like the it was all a dream explanation. I know after last recording, we were talking off mic about Lost, uh, the TV oh, show boy. and the finale. Yep. So if you look at what happened with everyone who misinterpreted the ending of Lost and thought, oh, they were all dead the whole time or it was all a dream the whole time, which it wasn't. But that's a conversation for another time. That's not a very pleasing way to tell a story or to think how a story has been told, which leads me to no one put dialogue into the film himself between these two positions. Are you re- is it really I mean, quite, quite regularly, especially in Limbo with Maul's projection, putting up the arguments that everyone puts up to Cobb, like he's being chased by people. All these projections are persecuting him all the time. And Cobb himself refutes that. And he's like, no, I know this isn't real. I'm leaving to go be with our kids. And then Nolan himself codes, for me, he codes his answer for this entire question into the movie with the quote we mentioned earlier, through Cobb's insistence during the planning of this job that positive emotion trumps negative emotion every time, yearning for reconciliation for catharsis. For me, he's in reality ending gives us that. It's asked and answered. So yeah, there's plenty of dreamlike things that you can call out for what I'm calling reality or like what's presented as reality in the movie, like when they're not dreaming, supposedly the chases, the the Mombasa sequence, other elements and all that. But for me, they're all part of the misdirection and the playing with our expectations. Nolan has done this to this point in his career. He's done this so much. By this point, we should know from past films, this is what he's trying to do. We should be wise to it. And I even mentioned this with Hitchcock and Vertigo last time and casting that doubt about Madeline possibly being possessed. He just puts that seed in there and then he lets our minds do the work for him to think, oh, hey, wait, is this yeah going to turn into some ghost story? So for me, that the dreamlike things getting stuck in the wall in the alley, that's misdirection. No one's letting us do the work for him again and fooling ourselves into thinking, you know, this is a dream world at the end, making it more complicated than it really is. Occam's razor, Cobb isn't dreaming. But to end on it, that's just what I think. You know, <laughs> Nolan himself says, you know, like comments about the deliberate ambiguity. And he said he had a hard time with that, that things not mattering to Cobb. He says he knew he wanted to do it, but that, quote, I knew that it would violate my own sense of cinematic ethics because the character doesn't care anymore. Cobb is left to see his kids. But that, number one, that doesn't mean Nolan doesn't have his own version. And the final thing I took from that, which maybe we will say we all three agree on everything's here. But ultimately, I think how someone chooses to view the ending of this film is all part of what other things Nolan says about our subjective belief in an objective reality. We, each one of us has a certain way we see the world. And for the most part, we also believe there is an objective truth to things that happen, or a lot of people do, maybe not everybody. We have what we want to believe and then what we think is truly real. But for example, the lead characters in Memento and Inception in the end do this themselves and they choose their own endings. And that proves Nolan's point with the ambiguity. Maybe there is an objective reality, but life's not like that. All we have as an individual person is what we perceive. And that's what these individuals in the story ultimately come to do and choose to believe. And all Nolan is saying is, what do you think? And what does that say about you with your interpretation? And given the discourse on this film, like me having to justify what I thought, you could go on the internet and find the forums and the threads and the arguments and the passionate debates. He succeeded entirely. 
So uh, the ambiguity, you know, people finding it tough to deal with. Yeah, totally proving his point. So, yeah, I have what I think. But on a filmmaking level, if that's what he was going for, then I think we can judge by the ripple effects 13 years on that it's a complete success. So there we go. Now, now I can have people screaming at the speakers saying he was dreaming the whole time. It's great. We've done it. I hope they're all screaming. Marshall, that was fantastic. <laughs> so at this point, uh, are there any final thoughts after all that that we want to bring up before we do those letterbox reviews? Because I have a couple. Go ahead. Um, one other thing that I really notice about on this viewing that kind of I hadn't really thought too much about before was just the relationship between Cobb and Saito um, yeah. at the beginning and the end. You know, that's kind of the part of the circularity. The pairing of those characters may be a bit underrated or not the first thing you think of when you think of Inception, but obviously that relationship is totally 100% crucial to Cobb's being able to get home or at least thinking he'll be able to get home. And I really just, you know, the through lines for those two, that whole movie, I really enjoyed this time and focusing on that as well as the cost to Ocean's Eleven because of the, again, the circularity of that in real life to Steven Soderbergh and George Clooney being the executive producers on Insomnia and helping him get that job, which launched him into the studio system. And finally, I have a question for y'all. Not going to be anything like those quotes. Do you think this might be one of the greatest three film runs ever for somebody? For me, in the prestige Dark Knight Inception, holy smokes, what a murderer's row. Let me think about that. But first, I do like the uh, the Ocean's Eleven reference. And I noted that I really liked they get their own like Bellagio fountain moment. Uh, they're at the airport where they're all kind of acknowledging each other, walking through baggage claim, uh, just like, you know, nodding it, you know, a job well done. Kind of like the way Ocean's Eleven ends when they all kind of get to bask in the glory of what they've done. I, I'm still a big Al Pacino. I know some people make fun of him and he became a, caricature of himself but Serpico Godfather 2 and Dog Day Afternoon my goodness if we're talking about three films in a row ooh man Serpico Godfather Part 2 Dog Day Afternoon those three movies in a row bang 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 I am I know I'm going actor but Pacino in those three movies he just crushed it and those were awesome so that's the first thing that comes to mind for me um, I actually have an answer with this, and I'm surprised we haven't talked about this guy more often on this podcast just because we so often refute uh, the Nolan is cold, Nolan is emotionless, and Nolan is just a mystery box filmmaker. And there's really only one other modern day contemporary to him. Uh, and they are actually, I just found out, were born in the same year, and that is M. Night Shyamalan. And so many of his movies, like it's even Sixth Sense is mentioned in the Nolan Variations as, you know, one of those movies where, you know, the twist and then that makes everything that came before it way better. I think the uh, three film run that probably rivals the one that we just mentioned is so he went from Sixth Sense to Unbreakable to Signs back to back to back. And then he followed that up with The Village, which I think is great, but we can talk off mic about that uh, later. Uh, so he, yeah, he goes, he starts with Sixth Sense and like is dubbed like the new Spielberg. Uh, then Unbreakable, which was way before its time, really good examination of comic books and superheroes and supervillains. So good. And then you get to, yeah. And then you get to Signs, 
which is everyone remembers it for the dumb like oh well if spoilers for signs but like if water killed them then how could they even come to earth if like it's not about that it's like the movie is about mel gibson and joaquin phoenix and it's about grief and trauma and like that's why that flashback happens there towards the end and so he's a lot of his later movies too are like really just deal with a lot of emotional things just in his m night Shyamalan movie trappings but i think that one like if you want to talk about just like banger after banger six sense unbreakable signs as far as directors go well one thing to go off of what you're talking about i'm going to take it in just a slightly different direction but these types of movies aren't made they're really not made anymore you either do the big franchise you do marvel you do the thing that you know is going to make a lot of money um or you do the indie film the smaller budget films that you put on hulu you do on hbo whatever or you go you know straight to streaming and um, I just think this was a really special run because I think Nolan really captured an audience at the right time. And really, in the movies you've mentioned and the other three movie stretches you've talked about, I think maybe there's some of that to this discussion, too. But I kind of feel like it wouldn't have been as popular if this had happened 10 years later or 10 years earlier. I kind of feel like we hit a really we hit a sweet spot when these movies came out. What do you all think about that? I think so. And I think um, talking about how Nolan caused a lot of stuff, like shifts in the culture for a film, like with the Academy Awards and stuff too. Like, I think he did definitely cause, I don't want to say demise, but I think the success of the Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises and everything that happened like a little bit before Avengers. Cause I think, what Avengers happened the same year as Dark Knight Rises. And so then like you've got those two happening and then MCU Avengers just takes off and like that's all anyone ever wants now is comic book stuff. And then the market for, you know, stuff like Inception, original stuff like that kind of gets smaller and smaller. Yeah, I don't know. Like it, it, it was a week, like 2010 is such an interesting year for all of that because it was like social media was still... It's a big thing, but it hadn't really taken off into what it's become now. So like everyone is still like not really relating to the world in that way yet. Like that's still kind of like bubbling on the horizon under the surface. I mean, this is like two years after the iPhone, right? Just to give a little context, you're you're making a good point, but just for context. I mean, the, the iPhone came out two years before this. Yeah. And so like we had like we'd always had the Internet. And then, you know, the iPhone just kind of blows everything up. And so, like, stuff was always kind of like, oh, I can get things on the Internet with the press of a button or I can have instant gratification. But it was not at the level that we now experience now, obviously. And it definitely wasn't at the level that, you know, you could experience with an iPhone when Inception comes out. And then, yeah, I feel like everything just kind of, like, ramped up after that in terms of superhero stuff and the blockbuster IP, everything. Like, I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, the area for anything that was not gargantuan blockbuster or indie film has shrunk like there's no middle level adult film anymore adult meaning like made for adults not porn but like there's no middle (laughs) level there's no middle ground anymore right yeah i mean not to be cynical or sad or depressing but just being realistic i think just what i was getting at and you're kind of proving my point i just i don't know what young movie director makes an inception 
tangential movie or a similar to Inception with the money, with the budget in this position. I just don't know if we really have a movie like this. I guess I won't say ever again, but at least with where Hollywood's going, I just think it's really special to talk about what this was, when it was and what it meant, because I just don't know if we're having that moment ever again with where we've gone with everything you just said, Jake. I also think streaming might play a big part in that too, because I remember first year of college, I took a film class and they were like, okay, you need to watch X, Y, and Z. All of them are available on Netflix. Just get a student plan subscription, which existed back then. (laughs) And like, I was able to watch the Godfather part one and part two on Netflix in 2010, 2011. There was no arms race to get everyone to get their own content out already. And so you could easily do something that could appeal to everyone. And now I think the the market is much more segmented and you're much more apt to be like, well, I like this type of movie. I'm only going to go do this and I'll go to the theater when that happens or I'll check out this director's thing on streaming or I'll watch this type of show, but I'm not really going to pay for another subscription service when something that you know might appeal to everyone really only gets sold to like Amazon or Hulu or something. And then that kind of like cuts off the broader audience at the knees. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've, um, I think I'm on board with what y'all are saying. Definitely a unique moment in time. Yeah. Cause we got to bring this to a close soon, but, um, yeah, like that, the year inception came out and in just a couple years after that, before things really just absolutely just shattered in terms of audiences and fragmentation and all that, just to think of that time is just absolutely wild. And, just to have something not even like a original like inception like movie that have a massive impact like on its own it would be kind of just a surprise for something to just do that on its own so yeah we're it's a i don't know if i'd say a lost time or if we'll never see something like that again because things do go in cycles but it's certainly inception itself is uh yeah for at least for me personally it was uh yeah definitely uh impactful film at a at a unique time i definitely think if this came out in like 2020 just give it 10 years this thing's going through the shredder in terms of like well when you looked at this scene well if you think about the logic right i mean just not to go too much into it but i certainly think this movie comes out at a time when there's a lot more scrutiny just with reddit and twitter and all the stuff going on right now it would have a lot more criticism that makes personally me roll my eyes where it's just like just appreciate it for the entertainment for the storytelling you know to both Marshall and Jake both of y'all's points I just think it would not have maybe rung true for a lot of people like it did in 2010 if it had come out in like 2020 right and I think that kind of in a Nolan context you see that played out with as we get to films like Interstellar and then of course Tenet yeah, and the it comments on that and the Nolan variations too. And Nolan himself is kind of aware of it where you can break everything down and have millions of threads on whatever, just like one shot of the movie or something. So definitely a, a pertinent point to bring up as we are poised to continue on our Christopher Nolan journey. But uh, as much fun as we're having talking about Inception, we've got to try and bring it around to a close sometime and we've got to get these letterbox reviews in. Uh, so anybody want to kick that off? 
I'll go first. Um, and mine, like I said, uh, loops back to our discussion on uh, what was that ending? Is he dreaming or is he in reality? Uh, and this review is from David Chin, and he hosts the Filmcast podcasts. But uh, his is very short, and it says, quote, The most important emotional thing about the top spinning at the end is that Cobb is not looking at it. He doesn't care. End quote. Christopher Nolan, Wired interview, December 8th, 2010. So he has been talking about that ending literally ever since this movie came out. Um, And he has been giving that opinion on the ending ever since the movie came out, essentially. Uh, So he learned his lesson from Memento, I would say. But um, I'm pretty sure that's where I was introduced to that concept. I think I saw that quote then and that obfuscated a little bit my, uh, as I mentioned a little earlier, what my interpretation was and made me think about what like I thought. But I finally have confronted it and dealt with it. But still a good quote. I'm glad I'm glad <laughs> no one shared that with us because he has a point. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I uh this is great for just being different. Uh my letterbox review is actually from as of this recording three days ago. I wanted to find something recent just for fun, and so this actually works perfectly since you found a much older review. But yeah, um this is from DLBW14 from late March. Very simple. I'm going to keep it brief. One sentence. This was slightly less confusing the second time around and much more enjoyable. Just think about that for a second. Isn't that kind of like Nolan's MO? Isn't that kind of like, couldn't you copy and paste that to almost, almost all of his films where it's like, I just think that's just such a fun, simple way to describe this movie and most of Nolan's movies. I would agree for sure because not even with Nolan films exclusively, but with plenty of other films. Sometimes when I watch them a second time, once I'm not fully focused on understanding strictly the plot and that's not in my head anymore, it can definitely enhance things. So I don't know if I'm arguing that everybody should see every movie twice or anything like that, but being able to revisit them a second time can definitely be helpful. And I think sometimes it's that because that's not in the way. So I like that review. And so I guess I'll wrap it up with the one I picked. Also kind of a relatively recent one, but this one struck a chord with me. Review by Matthew Michael Hoffman at Acting MMH wrote, One of my greatest accomplishments in life is understanding this plot inside and out. And I, I felt that energy. I like that. I appreciate that. And and I like it too. I, I I like that fact about myself as well. <laughs> it's an achievement for sure because I'm still watching it even after like six times, being like, oh, okay, all right, I got gotcha. you. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I mean, still find some new details, but as far as the general overall mechanics, I've got it down. But all right, I think we have ridden to the end of the this train. This line is about to go out of service. Uh, and we might have to finally force ourselves to wake up from the dream. So with that in oh, mind, no. I know. Be careful what you find out there in the real world, folks. Uh, <laughs> but uh, if we want to continue the conversation elsewhere on social media and the Internet, where could people find us, Jake? Yeah, you can find us at Friends at Dusk Pod on Instagram and at Friends at Dusk on Twitter. 
Uh, if you want to email us any uh, compliments, thoughts, concerns, prayer requests, what have you, uh, friends at duskpod at gmail.com. And you can find me, uh, I'm on Instagram and Twitter at jakeharris4. And then Letterboxd is at 808jake underscore. And I am on Instagram at marshall.doig, Twitter at marshalldoig, and on Letterboxd at mdoig. And Jay, glad you're here. Where can people keep up with you as we move forward? Sure. Well, definitely follow these two guys. They're awesome. I'm just hanging on for the ride here. But yeah. Um, there will be movie stuff sprinkled in uh, to my pages. Um, the big things is probably just Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Jay Wallace journalist. Sometimes I try to be that thing that's at the end of my name and uh, Twitter's WFAA Jay Wallace. WFAA is the ABC station I work for here in Dallas and Instagram is Jay Wallace WFAA. So if you want to see some news and a little bit of movie talk sprinkled in there, Come on over. Happy to respond and talk to anyone about anything movie related. Great. I kind of uh, this time around noticed the sort of the palindromic nature of your Twitter and Instagram handles. You got affiliate name for Twitter and then name and affiliate for Instagram. Very cool. Tenet would be proud. I just love that. <laughs> I just love that I heard the word palindromic today. Like now my life's complete. That was just I heard that in my day to day. So this is great. I feel confident that that's the correct adjective. I'll, uh, because of who I am, I'm going to be checking the dictionary later. But you know what? That's okay. Language. We're going to go with it. Let's go. Let's go with it. Yeah. I love it. So uh, if if uh, you have stuck with us this far, uh, I would imagine and hope that you would uh, give us a like and subscribe uh, on wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts if you'd be so kind. If you listen there or anywhere else, you can give us a rating. You can support us through our now Spotify podcasts page. Anchor is no more. They've rebranded. And you can also find a list of resources in our show notes. And next time we will be discussing influences on The Dark Knight Rises. And that'll do it for us. We'll see you next time on Friends at Dusk. Thanks for listening. Bye. No. Yeah.